Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 41. Last week, I ended the history of Syria, the region, and the modern country, covering the period through the 21st century. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm putting the podcast in reverse and backing up some 8,000 years to begin anew with the history of the city of Damascus. Why am I focusing on the city itself right now? Well, the last time I checked into the Old Testament, we were in the narrative of Genesis 14, specifically the Battle of Siddam. In this passage, Abraham chases King Shedeliomer and company past the city of Damascus to Hobah. So let's get started. Radiocarbon dating, specifically of carbon-14, at Tel Ramad, which is located on the outskirts of Damascus, indicates that the site was probably occupied beginning around the latter half of the 7th millennium BC, maybe around 6300 BC. Okay, so a few caveats. First, like I've said many times, these are not my dates, but the dates proposed by scientific researchers. Second, I've mentioned radiocarbon dating a few times, so now is probably just as good of a time as any to explain what it is. Once again, I am by no means proposing that you buy into it. That's for you to decide. Instead, I think it's important to understand the methods that researchers rely on to establish their theories. Radiocarbon dating is sometimes called carbon dating or carbon-14 dating. It's a method for determining the age of an object that contains organic material by utilizing the properties of carbon-14, a radioactive isotope of carbon. The technique was developed by Willard Libby in the late 1940s. Libby was a professor at the University of Chicago who won the Nobel Prize in 1960 for his discovery. The dating method soon became an accepted tool for archaeologists. He also developed a similar method using tritium, a radioactive isotope of hydrogen, to date water, and anything containing water, even wine. The radiocarbon dating method is built on the fact that radiocarbon is constantly being produced in the atmosphere by the interaction of cosmic rays with atmospheric nitrogen. The actual chemistry and physics is a bit too deep for this podcast on history. The radiocarbon that results interacts with atmospheric oxygen to form radioactive carbon dioxide, which is absorbed by plants via photosynthesis. Next, plant-consuming animals then ingest carbon-14 when they eat the plants. In fact, you are doing that today when you consume your salad. And also, indirectly, when you eat that bacon cheeseburger. When the animal or plant dies, it stops the normal exchange of carbon with its environment. Starting then, the quantity of carbon-14 it contains begins a slow decrease as the isotope experiences radioactive decay. Measuring the amount of carbon-14 from a dead plant, such as a piece of wood, or an animal, perhaps from a fragment of bone, provides data that can be used to calculate when the animal or plant died. Essentially, the older a sample is, the less carbon-14 it contains, and therefore less of the isotope will be detected. The half-life of carbon-14 is roughly 5,700 years, Remember, a half-life is the period of time after which half of a given sample will decay. With current technologies, the oldest dates that can be reliably measured by this dating process is around 50,000 years. Occasionally, more intensive preparation techniques permit an accurate analysis of older samples, but just occasionally. 
The theory of radiocarbon dating is relatively simple, but like so many things in life, the practice proved anything but. Years of work were required to develop a practical procedure that allowed what are thought to be accurate dating of artifacts. Essentially, constant research since the 1960s has been needed to determine the proportion of carbon-14 in the atmosphere over the past 50,000 years. The resulting data are not linear, but instead thought to be curvilinear, and is now utilized to translate a given measurement of radiocarbon in a sample to an approximation of the sample's age. There are other specifics to the method, which take into account numerous variables, but they too are a bit too deep for this podcast. But, information concerning the technique is readily available from numerous sources. Of course, the practice is not without limitations and criticisms, as you would naturally expect from something with this many variables. The discovery and development of radiocarbon dating has had a significant impact on archaeology, In addition to permitting a seemingly more accurate dating of archaeological sites, it allows comparison of dates of events that were dispersed over a great geographic area. Within the narrative of archaeology, its development is often referred to as the radiocarbon revolution. Radiocarbon dating has also allowed key transitions in prehistory to be dated, such as the end of the last ice age and the beginning of the Neolithic and Bronze Ages in different geographic regions. And now, at least, when someone refers to carbon dating, you'll know the theory behind the practice. Back to Damascus. Radiocarbon dating at Tel Ramad suggests that the site was first occupied around 6300 BC. But there is evidence of settlement in the wider Barada Basin, an arid plateau that surrounds the city, and it suggests inhabitants as far back as 9000 BC. However, there is no large-scale settlement found within the ancient walls of the city that date before the 2nd millennium BC. There are early Egyptian records, namely the Armana letters from about 1350 BC when Damascus, then called Damascus, was ruled by a king named Brayawaza. The region surrounding Damascus, as well as the rest of Syria, became a battleground sometime around 1260 BC between the Hittites from the north and the Egyptians to the south. This war ended with a signed treaty between Hattusila and Ramses II, where the Hittites gave up control of the Damascus area to Ramses in 1259 BC. Then came the so-called Sea Peoples, who arrived around 1200 BC, thus marking the end of the Bronze Age in the region. This apparently brought about new wars and the corresponding technology that comes along with it. At the time, Damascus probably had a small population and did not garner much attention. But, there were events at the time that would lead to a growth in population and therefore importance over the next many centuries, especially with the evolution from the Bronze to the Iron Age. According to the 1st century AD Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who has earned his own episode at some point in the future, Josephus, in his 21-volume tome, called the Antiquities of the Jews, groups Damascus together with Trachonitis, and claims it was founded by Uz, the son of Aram. Aram, remember from the Table of Nations, was the son of Shem, grandson of Noah. Josephus quotes Nicholas of Damascus, a 1st century BC Greek historian and philosopher. Nicholas, in the fourth book of his history, wrote, Abraham reigned at Damascus, being a foreigner, who came with an army out of the land above Babylon, called the land of the Chaldeans, 
But after a long time, he got him up and removed from that country also with his people and went into the land then called the land of Canaan, but now the land of Judea. And this is when his posterity were to become a multitude. As to which posterity of his, we relate their history in another work. Now the name of Abraham is even still famous in the country of Damascus. And there is shown a village named for him, the habitation of Abraham. Overall, Damascus was not recognized as a significant location until the arrival of the Aramanes, a Semitic people from Mesopotamia. They came onto the scene in the 11th century BC. Then, by the start of the first millennium BC, several Aramaic kingdoms had formed in the area, as the Aramanes forsook their nomadic lifestyle and formed confederated tribal states. One such kingdom was known as Aram Damascus, and it located its capital in Damascus, hence the name. Various Aramenes entered the city without a fight and adopted the name Damascus for their new home. These people then developed a water distribution and irrigation system in Damascus by constructing canals and tunnels. This system utilized the river Barada and allowed a growth of agricultural production. This in turn led to both population and economic growth. Of course, one typically is enjoined with the other. The same infrastructure was later enhanced by the Romans in the Umayyads. In fact, it still forms the basis of the water system of the old part of the city today. Certainly, the initial architect had no clue what his work would rot. At first, the Arameans turned Damascus into an outpost of a loose federation of Aramean tribes known as Aram Zoba, based in the Bika Valley. The city would gain prestige and power in the region when Ezron, the heir apparent to Aram Zoba's throne, was denied kingship of the federation. He then fled Baka and captured Damascus by force in 965 BC. Ezron then overthrew the city's tribal governor and established the independent kingdom of Aram Damascus. As this new state grew southward, it forestalled the kingdom of Israel from spreading north, and the two kingdoms soon collided. At that time, they both sought to dominate the trade routes to their east. Then came Ezron's grandson, Ben-Hadad I, who ruled from 880 to 841 BC. He was succeeded by Hazal. Under Hazal's rule, Damascus captured Bazan in what is the modern region of Haran, currently on the border of Syria and Jordan. Syria then engaged with the Kingdom of Israel. This conflict continued until about the early 8th century BC, when Ben-Hadad II was captured by Israel after unsuccessfully surrounding Samaria. As a result, he conferred to Israel his kingdom's trading rights in Damascus. Wars, like elections, have their consequences. Researchers theorize that the treaty between Aram Damascus and Israel could have also been the result of the common threat of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. At that time, they were attempting to expand as far as the Mediterranean coast. Then, in 853 BC, King Hadadazar of Damascus led a coalition of the Levantine states, including forces from the northern Aram Hamath kingdom and troops supplied by King Ahab of Israel. They marched to the Battle of Karkar against the Neo-Assyrian army. In this battle, the Aram Damascus forces were victorious and temporarily prevented the Assyrians from invading Syria. Temporarily. 
But after Hadad Zizar was slain by his successor Hazal, the Levantine Confederacy disintegrated. Aram Damascus then attempted to invade Israel, but they were sidetracked by a reinvigorated Assyrian invasion. As a result, Hazal ordered his troops to retreat to within the walled portion of Damascus, while the Assyrians looted the abandoned portion of the kingdom. But the Assyrians were unable to enter the city and instead asserted their supremacy in the Haran and Bekaa valleys. By the 8th century BC, the city of Damascus was essentially surrounded by the Assyrians and practically entered a depressing era. Despite this, the city remained the economic and cultural center of the Near East. It was also a focal point of the probably underground Aramean resistance to the Assyrians. In 727 BC, the residents of the city revolted against the Assyrians, but the revolt was quickly extinguished by the Assyrian forces. Then the Assyrians conducted a large operation of subduing revolts throughout Syria. But despite these revolts and the destruction of the other revolting cities, Damascus became complete subjects of the Assyrians. But on the bright side, Assyrian control provided stability in the city, leading to economic prosperity through trade, particularly spice and incense trade with the Arabian Peninsula. However, Assyrian control was declining by the late 7th century BC, and Syria-Palestine was increasingly falling under control of the Egyptians, who at this time were ruled by Pharaoh Necho II. A few decades later, in 572 BC, the entirety of Syria was conquered by the Neo-Babylonians. After this, for a short time, little is known about the goings-on in Damascus. Then, in the 4th century BC, Damascus was conquered by the Greek Alexander the Great. After Alexander's death in 323, Damascus was struggled over between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires. As such, control of the city was frequently passed from one empire to the other. One of Alexander's generals, Seleucus Nictar, made Antioch the capital of his large empire, leading to the decline of Damascus's importance, especially compared with the other more recent Seleucidian cities, such as Latakia to the north of Damascus. Sometime later, Demetrius III rebuilt the city, utilizing the Greek Hippodamian system and renamed it after himself, Demetrius. The Hippodamian city plan called for a rectangular grid. In this era, such an arrangement was rare. In the event of an invasion of the city, infiltrators could more easily find their way in and around a rectangular grid. A city of curving, twisting, dead-ending, and unorganized streets proved to be much harder for a stranger to navigate. While inefficient, it served as a protective measure. Despite this, the Hippodamian plan called for a neatly arranged, ordered, and organized city, consisting of lined-up, wide streets. Public space was clustered together in the center of the city. Shrines, theaters, government buildings, and market space were all grouped together all surrounded by the grid of city streets. Also in this area was what was called the Agora, which was a central space where athletic, political, artistic, and spiritual activity took place. In this plan, and it was planned, locations for public space were arranged in advance. Prior to the Hippodamian plan, site apportionment seemed to be done at random. Think of it as the first city planning board. And back to Damascus. As I've covered before, and no doubt will cover again, in 64 BC, Roman General Pompey captured the western part of Syria. Beginning then, 
The Romans occupied Damascus and subsequently incorporated it into the League of Ten Cities known as the Decapolis. These cities were then incorporated into their province of Syria and granted some autonomy. After then, the city of Damascus was wholly redesigned. Through today, what is known as the ancient city of Damascus retains the rectangular shape of the Roman city. It is focused on two primary main axes. First, there is the Decumanus Maximus, which runs east to west and is known today as the Via Recta. Second, there is the Cardo, which runs north to south. The Decumanus is about twice as long as the Cardo, essentially making it a true rectangle. The Romans also built a monumental gate which still survives at the eastern end of the Decumanus Maximus. Roman architects brought together the Greek and Aramean foundations of the city and fused them into a new layout measuring approximately one mile long by half a mile wide, or about 1,500 by 750 meters. They then surrounded this area with a wall. The wall contained seven gates. To the east, there is a gate generally refers to the Bab Sharkai, but sometimes it is called the Gate of the Sun, since it's on the east, or more generically, the Eastern Gate. It is one of the seven ancient city gates of Damascus. It is also the only original Roman gate still standing. As you probably could have guessed, its modern name comes from its location at the eastern side of the city. The gate also gives its name to the Christian quarter surrounding it. The gate originally had three arches. The central arch was intended for chariots, while the adjacent side arches were for pedestrians. The grand facade of the gate was reconstructed in the 1960s. A picture will be posted on the podcast Facebook page. Like most ancient cities, Roman Damascus lies at depths of up to 16 feet or 5 meters below the modern city. In 23 BC, Caesar Augustus gave Herod the Great lands that up until that point had been controlled by Xenodorus, the leader of a small town outside of Damascus. This leads some researchers to believe that Herod was also granted control of Damascus itself. Upon Herod's death, control of Damascus reverted to the province of Syria. But a few researchers believe that the reversion coincided with the death of Herod's son, Herod Philip, in about 34 AD. Either way, control passed back to the Syrians. Some historians propose that control of Damascus was gained by Eratos IV of Nabatea between the death of Herod Philip and the death of Eratos in 40 AD. In fact, many of these theories stem from the New Testament narrative, specifically 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. That passage from the New Revised Standard Version reads, In Damascus, the governor under King Eratos guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. End quote. Rolling forward a few centuries, Damascus once again became a major city by the beginning of the 2nd century AD. To that end, in 222 AD, its designation was upgraded to a colonia by Emperor Septimius Severus. During the Pax Romana, Damascus, as well as the entire Syrian province, began to prosper. Damascus's importance as a trading city was evident with the economic routes from southern Arabia Palmyra, Petra, and the silk routes from China all converging on the city. The old borough known as Babtuma was where a group of Eastern Orthodox adherents congregated at the end of the Roman and Byzantine era. 
It is also believed that both Paul and Thomas lived in that neighborhood. Roman Catholic historians also consider Baptuma to be the birthplace of several popes, such as John V and Gregory III. And that is the history of the city of Damascus, essentially through the end of the Roman era. Next week, I'll start with the history of Damascus beginning with the influence of Islam. You don't want to miss it. Like I said last week, once I get going, sometimes I don't know where the story will take me. Who would have thought that this week would not only include the history of Damascus, but also the theory of radiocarbon dating and Greek city planning? Despite this, or maybe, just maybe because of this, you will give the podcast a positive review on iTunes. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.